Welcome to the 5 and Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, a particular topic close to my heart, uh, two of my loves and how they coincide, editing and drumming. For this conversation, I'm joined by drummer from Mock Orange, Heath Metzger. Uh, their band is coming out with a new virtual entertainment, spelled with an I, entertainment computer special that will be on demand for 24 hours starting i believe on may 25th and what's fun about this and the reason he's on this episode is he had a hand in editing the special so you see how worlds collide also on this episode is my old friend and co-worker chris roldan uh, he's a great editor who has worked on films for richard linklater and terrence malick uh, also one of the funniest people you could ever work with but lately I was heartened to find out that he's gotten back into drumming because he had an older career where he was both a promoter, manager, and a drummer. So uh, another area where worlds collide. But first, what I watched this week, uh, I, two, two notable titles I want to bring up. One, I, I, do you guys have uh, movies that you had a period in your life you overwatched? And then you go a long period that you love, and then you go a long period without seeing them, and it's 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 a great fun of rediscovering something that you kind of watched into the ground. I rewatched American History X, which in the late uh, '90s was a movie, uh, probably one of the first DVDs I bought and watched over and over. I always thought the ending was so beautiful, and I was always interested in the behind the scenes post-production fight about that but being a teenager and years away from having worked in editing i took the auteur side so i was on the side of tony k against ed norton fighting uh, stealing this movie away and having his editors take it over um i recently heard ed norton on a podcast talk talk up how this happened and he mentioned that the movie and i didn't realize it but it makes sense is edited by two of the great New York editors, Jerry Greenberg and Alan Heim, who we talked about a bit on the All is, All That Jazz episode. And you could see that the 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 way Edward Norton described this this movie was overshot and not shaped, and then the editors with Norton came in and shaped it. That narrative makes a little more sense, especially since Tony K has not matched that. Whether, you know, I don't know if you're a fan of the Marlon Brando documentary on acting or what snippets of it we got out there, but his, I mean, not, not to judge his career on where a direction he clearly didn't want to go into, but, but also in that movie, one lovely surprise, which I always forget, is uh, Evansville native Avery Brooks, uh, Captain Sisko from Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I never understood why he never got more didn't get more roles or never got more traction he's always a great presence and especially for a movie where edward norton's you know trying to make a pretty uh sizable oscar nominated role avery brooks goes toe to toe with him so he that was a pleasant surprise but the other interesting movie i watched this week on the criterion channel right now i've uh, been wanting to get around to this uh the hot rock i'd always heard it it was a uh a tonal model for the oceans 11 soderbergh's ocean 11 series I'd never seen it. It's Robert Redford, directed by Peter Yates. And I was getting through the credits and didn't realize it's written, it's, it's adapted from Donald Westlake novel, but it's written by William Goldman. And it's also William Goldman's 
follow-up, technically, to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. At least it's his first movie to be made after Butch Cassidy. And it's a fun movie. Peter Yates, you're, you're not going to go wrong with Peter Yates. Uh, I, I, he, he seems like... Uh, it really struck me that that lovely style that is exemplified by people like uh, Alan J. Pakula in the early 70s, those ones who uh, that f- have really eccentric framing that as the scene goes on and they don't cut makes sense the further they get into a scene and it just it's just such a iconic thing of uh seven, certain 70s directors and yates is really good with it this movie's goofy as hell like it's it's just from a logistic standpoint i guess you you would attribute this to donald westlake does not make sense where and then the tone and the fun of the movie though is clearly i don't know if it was would Goldman have been considered someone that, that uh, was Robert Redford's go-to to write goofy, funny character? And it's still a really fun movie. It's just goofier than I was really, really expecting. But anyway, on to this week's episode. Um, I'm not sure anybody really knows this who didn't know me in high school, but uh, I used to be uh, playing bands around, um, around the north side of Evansville and i was the drummer and i was actually for a while there i was pretty good the, pr- the problem i always had was i couldn't play loud my my idol at the time was someone like my favorite drummers were like jimmy chamberlain or smashing pumpkins and dave grohl or nirvana especially dave grohl and so i liked the loud playing and uh i couldn't play loudly at home at uh, one house so by the time i bought drums like we were playing in the garage and it'd be a hundred degrees and you couldn't have the cops called on me multiple times. So part of the reason I'm living in Evansville and recording this podcast in my basement was I wanted to buy a basement that I could attempt to soundproof and sitting next to me while I'm recording this is my drum set. It's still my drum set from high school, kind of beaten down, uh, dragged and storage spaces throughout the years it made the trip down to austin where it was rarely have ever used and now back to evansville where it's kind of used again after uh the episode actually uh, heath and i ended up having a conversation about soundproofing drum rooms that would, um, but drumming is something i've noticed i mentioned this in the episode that i feel has always given me a little bit of a leg up when editing and it's, it's such a secret sauce of filmmaking and like anyone who's going to extol to you why editing is the one intrinsic thing that a film can do that no other artistic medium has in this exact same way. We'll talk about rhythm and musicality and you watch it in a movie and you can tell it when the movie doesn't have it, you know it. And this topic being so close to close to my heart, uh, I, was, I, I wanted to have these two people on, Chris Roldan and Heath Metzger, to see if we can try to maybe get to the heart of something, some overlap. Um, I hope we got it. Anyway, on with this episode. I was making this joke earlier, Heath, but editors, we don't have to worry about production audio. We just get it in eventually <laughs> and then complain right, about it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> so where where are you at, Heath? 
Uh, Columbus, Indiana. So that's okay. just that's in between Indy and Louisville on sixty five. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever see that movie, Columbus? No. There's a movie that there's an indie movie uh, that's pretty popular from a few years ago that was shot in Columbus. It's about um, it's about an Asian son of an architect who supposedly designed parts of. Uh, I mean, you, there's I guess there's a lot of architectural, mainly one of the bridges into town. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful movie. It's a really interestingly shot movie. It did well at Sundance a few years ago. And it's funny because when it was popular, I was for some reason telling my dad about it. And he was trying to tell me that my grandpa was a part of some of the, not architectural stuff, but some of the engineering on one of the bridges in town. And I was oh, like, wow. yeah, that was my backhand way of being like, I guess my grandpa's got some stuff going on with film history. Hmm. But That's great. You should, uh. So it's called it's called simply Columbus. Yeah, Roldan, did All you right. see that? Have you seen it? No, I've not seen it. Mm-mm. I think I saw it at the uh, AFS uh, at the Marquesa when it was still in Austin. Oh wow! Um, yeah, um, Heath. Part of the reason I wanted to do this was um, I was locally um, talking to the local filmmaker named Jordan Barkley. Who, oh yeah. Yeah, I was he he'd worked on a doc and I was get, I was checking it out and giving him some notes and as I was leaving he casually mentions like, "Oh, hey, guess what I went to Nashville and shot a few weeks back." And he showed me some of the footage of you guys' uh what is it called exactly? Uh it's the virtual uh pandemic internet special, something <laughs> like that. I don't know, it was way too many words and it was kind of just silly. <laughs> is it uh, and, and at some point, like we're already almost post pandemic. So we were going to change it to just live at battle tapes, which is the recording studio. Okay. Um, but I don't know, for whatever reason we got lazy, it just, it just stuck. So is this in lieu of, this is like playing live. You guys are going to do a de facto pandemic live, a taped. Show. Yes. And it, it was supposed to happen um, earlier. And our booking agent may have had some hangups on her end. So it got postponed. And uh, so here we are almost out of this pandemic and we're going to release a special. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan told me that you edited it. Well, I, I, had a, I had a big hand in editing it. And then I took it as far as I could go and gave it and handed it off to Thomas Bernardin, okay. um, who... They share an office together and Thomas has a great eye. And, and uh, I just said, man, I'm, I'm very amateur. I love editing, but it's more for me. It's just, uh, it's been a kind of a hobby and I'm just learning. So when did you start the hobby? Uh, you know, I was thinking about that in case that question came up (laughs) And, and and I guess it goes back to about 2006 Okay. And I, th- I think I had just bought an iMac and it had uh, iMovie and I started messing around with s- silly little videos just to kind of make um, almost, I don't know, joke videos for songs that we had made that were also jokes. I never wanted to take myself seriously with it for some reason, but I'd say that was the first yeah, 2006. Were in it, was any of this utilized in any marketing in any of the albums over the years? Uh, no. The first thing I did that was ever put out was uh, 
World of Machines, which was a music video. I, re- that, I remember that video, yeah. Yeah, so Kevin Titzer, he shot it with some of our home camera, you know, the movie cameras we had, and and, uh, and I just kind of edited that. That was my first okay. thing okay. that people would have actually uh, been able to see. So. Okay. Um, Chris Roldan, you and I are, we haven't worked together, I want to say, in three years, but if you don't count that, we've been working together off and on for, I just did the math today, 12 years off and on. Wow. Wow. Yeah, wow. It has been that while. You are, um, every editing room I've worked with you, you're always the staple of, um, let's just say levity. Let's just say, like, you're the one that always has <laughs> the, the source of, like, amazing jokes in the editing room. I was listening to a podcast the other day where it was an editing podcast, and I want to say it was um, for Zack Snyder's Justice League. And they were, t- I think it might have been Dodie Dorn. They were talking about uh, handovers and they used a term when a lock is not permanent lock. They used the term latch. And I was oh like, my God, that's my I, term. Yes, exactly. That's what I thought. That's a Chris Roldan term. Yeah, they stole it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say sometimes it's a zip tie, you know. I would, I would zip tie was the one that was the better version of it, but still yeah. latch. It's 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 a part of the progress. But um, the, editing is your would you say your second or third career because you started? I mean, it's. I would say it is my. Um, it is my third career. Because really, my first career was in music as a uh, as a radio promoter, you know, and then it was as a manager, artist manager, and then editing. Yeah. Okay, I was leading you to talk about drumming, so you wouldn't have ever mm-hmm. considered drumming as a career. I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, that was, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, at the time, I didn't make any money doing it, so I didn't really consider it a career. But, but post you know, making no money, I, I made money doing it. So yeah, it was a okay. strange situation. Okay. You were the, 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 the big claim to fame was you were in the Himalayans, which was, mm-hmm. uh, um, counting crows before counting crows. I think, yeah, that's fair to say. Sure. Is that fair to say? Or is that? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's one way to say it. Sure. Amazing. Okay. But I mean, like, Adam was our yeah. Adam was our singer. Adam was in several bands in in San Francisco. Um, you know, at that time, um, I, you know, he he really never slept. He had a sleeping problem, so you know, he would just be in a bunch of bands, and um, and you know, we were one of them, and um, and you know, we we wrote the the song round here that was on August and everything after, and uh. And, you know, when we did it, it was a much different song. But uh, when they got signed, that was one of the reasons they got signed. But they were he was playing with Dave Bryson as an acoustic duo and they would they would cover our song. And um, and then when they went, made their first album, they put put it on the album. And that was it. All right. Well, let's start with the idea that musicians or being a musician is both your first careers. Uh, he thought I'll, I'll start with you first, but. What was your pathway into learning drums or just getting into playing music? Like, where did you first start to play learning drums or rhythms? Uh, I, I would say I, I first started with the piano, which obviously is a percussion kind of instrument. And really? then I, yeah, uh, well, I think I was in kindergarten when I started with piano. But when I finally got into the sixth grade, my sister had joined band uh, a year before me, and I thought, 
oh, that might be kind of fun. And they said, what do you want to play? And I thought, I don't know, the drums. And that's really what got me into the drums was just that decision to be like to, to take percussion lessons. And I liked hip hop. Um, I didn't care for a lot of rock back then. So I think I did have a um, propensity towards beats and, you know, and, and rhythm. Um, and I think it wasn't until my freshman year that I heard a rock album, it was the Dinosaur Junior album that I fell in love with. And then that kind of just led me to rock drumming. I, uh, my friend of mine's brother had a had like a punk rock band and I just started playing and that was it. I set sail. That was that I fell in love. Okay. I, I mean, I was, I followed you guys in high school and I was late to the game, but I mean, you guys had a reputation that was way beyond local as just, just virtuosic. Like, did you notice a point where you're just like, I'm suddenly getting really good at this and you notice it? Kind of. And I may have carried a little bit of sort of this uh, arrogance around uh, into my mid twenties until I realized there's just so much amazing music out there. But yeah, I, I always felt like what we were doing, uh, we didn't try to conform into what everyone else, uh, or, you know, into, uh, I, I guess our motives were kind of pure. We just enjoyed playing for playing's sake and we didn't really have any other agenda, uh, which ultimately <laughs> bit us in the ass because <laughs> we never made any money at all uh, with the music. but. We had a good time, and I guess, if nothing else, we sort of stayed true to the art of it. So you and Chris end up having something in common, at least in the first version. Chris, what was you, were you a school kid, too? Like, did you learn in school? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I actually uh, started at 10, and I, I like, was kind of, I was, took private lessons with, in the Bay Area with several really great teachers um what the my first teacher was a guy named dominic godino who um and, and he was out of uh corner this uh music store in corner madera california and um and then I, I actually was reading a, a one of the an interview from a guy that uh ended up playing for mars volta he's like oh i learned from dominic godino you know um and and then i it was funny i i looked up dominic godino i'm like i wonder what dominic's doing He's in jail for molesting kids now. So I was like, that was weird. Mm, <laughs> ouch. Yeah. No rhythm so, there. No rhythm there, but um rim shot. Yeah. Um he was he was a he was a pretty good teacher, you know. Um he didn't molest me, thank God. Um, but really like I, I played with um uh, you know a few different teachers and I uh and, and but one of my favorite one was this guy Tom Donlinger, who was playing for Van Morrison and he would like tour around the world with Van Morrison and Jerry Garcia. And, you know, I, I was not into the kind of music that my teachers were into. I was more of like a, you know, I liked rock and, and you know, um, but these guys were teaching me, they were all teaching me the same things. It was all like rudiments and stuff. And I was always like, this is terrible. I hate, I hate these things. I hate practicing. I hate learning this stuff. Um, but, you know, now I look back on it and I go like, wow, that was, that was really good. Like I, I actually dug up some, books that were kind of notated and stuff and i'm like we were doing some kind of cool stuff you know and um but uh yeah i mean i'm really grateful that i had some really good teachers and but i just i hated playing alone and i think you know the the idea of playing with a band once i was playing with bands 
you know, little punk rock bands in high school and into college and playing with just so many different bands and stuff. Like that's when I think it felt good and it didn't just feel like rudiments. You know? What kind of punk were you playing in high school? Um, well, so, I mean, it was like uh, in high school, I was uh, in a band called Spitting Children and it was just this terrible nice. band. And we just played like, you know, fast, loud, you know, it was like, you know, Circle Jerks and Gang Green were bands that we were listening to, you know, um, just, you know, these just really like songs, bands that had, you know, one minute, 30 seconds was like, you know, a long song, you know, like so, food tastes good. Um, yeah, that's right. Descendants, of course. Yeah. Evansville has a weird reputation for being having some, sl I mean, sloppy, dirty punk bands, but a punk, like it's a punk place. So it's, um, I don't know, Heath, if you can back me up on that or if you, if the. Um... Absolutely. I mean, Blue Collar, it, you know, I remember a lot of metal bands. There's a huge metal scene and it kind of mixed really well with the alternative scene. And at some point it just became sort of combined you had these these bands back in the day that that just would rip out some slayer i <laughs> think know? that might have been a little or i was at the tail end of that when i was in high school and starting to go to shows my, to, to to put reference on my era sankofa was my first club okay okay see we were back at the uh, stevenson station shelter house place i saw i saw one or two shows there but it wasn't the main venue yeah a lot of a lot of touring bands came to that weird place in the middle of a cornfield, and it was just uh, yeah. The, my first experience playing was um, at that place in front of about three hundred people, and I thought this is this is what I want to do forever. Of course, that was uh, the exception and not the rule. It turns out uh, <laughs> it's harder to make it in music than than just the, your first show, but. Also, the sliding scale of it got harder very quickly. I want to pose, since this is ostensibly a film podcast, we, we should probably get around to the correlation. What do you, the big question around this whole thing that I, I hope that we can milk an hour or two out of for conversation, what do you guys see in the correlation between editing and drumming? I mean, I want to go basic rhythm. Like I, there are time I started, I, my past was closer to Heath where I started, I made a choice in middle school, played drums, um, played a few, put in a few bands in high school, mainly stopped playing after high school. But when I started getting into editing, I was constantly feeling like I had an edge on other people just because there was a certain rhythm that just kept coming up and whether or not that's, you get mislaid of whether it's like, all kinds of rhythms. Like it wasn't just like four, four consistent rhythm, but syncopation, uh, rhythm and release, all these different rhythmic concepts just kept coming into play. And you, when you'd see someone's editing that wasn't rhythmic or didn't have a sense of timing or rhythm to it, it was one of those like weird musical things. You just like, you would want to point out, but you didn't know if you could share the same language with them. I mean, obviously rhythm, you know, rhythm is a big one. I mean, you know, you, their pacing is such a huge thing. And, and one of the things that I um, get, one of the things that I get uh, a lot of compliments on from people that I work with is they say, oh, you're, you know, you've got this paced really well, you know? So it's like, yeah, rhythm pacing is, is one thing, just kind of knowing, knowing when to, 
you know, lay back and knowing when to be more aggressive with your pacing. Um, but I think also like structure is one thing I've always been, you know, interested in song structure, you know, and I've always been a person in every band who's really been about like arranging things and um, trying different things with the structure. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, you, it's like a scene has a beginning, middle and end structure to it. And then the movie does. And, um, and I, I think it's the same thing with a song, you know, and with a set, you know, um, so you kind of, you know, I think there's also, there's a, there's a skill when you're playing live of like making a set, making a set list. And I think, uh, you know, you kind of have to feel that out, you know, or is this the right place to start out slow or, or do we want to just, you know, go out there and just really go in there and just jam, you know? Um, so I think, you know, pacing is one thing that, that, but, you know, working with music has, has, is something that I'm really good at. Um, and, and in a lot of the stuff that I work on lately, music is really important. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think as a musician, I think it, it's easy for me to identify the parts of songs and where the, where the parts will connect together to make it, you know, if I need to make it shorter, or if I need to make it longer. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the initial thing that sticks out to me. I know an added wrinkle to this is we're talking musicality in visual images and the rhythm of that. And then you, as an editor, you're playing music on top of that. Um, but Heath, with the, with the stuff you've edited so far, do you feel your sense of rhythm coming into play or do you feel like some drumming skills are coming out? Yeah. And, and so since I'm so new to it, I don't really know whether, you know, so I second guess myself all the time. I hit on the beat with, with cuts, you know, on the one. And that could be pretty boring if you did that for an hour. So on this newest, really the biggest project I've ever even thought about, you know, chewing on, I uh, started trying to figure out different ways to drag out this, the uh, shots longer before I cut. And for, for me, it's absolutely 100% rhythm and image together. I can't separate them. And I... I would, I would envy anyone that could have a drone and edit footage to a drone, uh, you know, and make cuts that worked because, um, I just don't, my brain does not lock up that way. Um, Chris, a few years ago, someone we used to mutually work with Tracy Duran, I was cutting a trailer and I was cutting on a very rhythmic beat. And she was the one that pointed out to me very clearly. She's like, you know, if you stay on that beat, everyone's going to expect when the cut comes and they're going to get bored waiting for it. They're going to know as it's coming. Definitely. I mean, that's the, that's the really interesting thing about rhythm is like, it doesn't have to, it's like when, and I think that's where drummers have an advantage because you know where the one is, but you also, you know, know where the upbeats are. And, and, you know, and so I like to, I definitely like to, cut musically but i don't necessarily have to cut on the one and so and i don't need to have the cuts dictate the rhythm sometimes it's motion you know so oh, yeah I can, yeah motion so totally. i can i i can use motion to indicate you know the rhythm also and so um i think it's kind of like um you know as you as you start playing more in music 
you know, when I was 10, you know, uh, it was like the, you know, the, the floor, you know, the bass drum was on the one and the three and the snare drum was on the two and the four. And, you know, that's great. And you can hold down a beat, but you, once you start learning about the upbeats and stuff, you know, it gets interesting. And, you know, one of the things that um, happened to me recently was uh, in December, I, I got uh, back into playing after taking about 20, 20 years off. That was a know? big reason I wanted to talk to you about this. Cause, yeah. uh, I was, cause a few years ago I asked you if you'd ever got your kid out of the garage and you were just like, no, and you seemed indifferent. And I was so excited that you got back into playing again. Yeah. I mean, some of that actually was, was, um, uh, just personal problems with it. You know, just as I had had that, I just, I just didn't really feel like I wanted to look at the drum set anymore. And, um, and, you know, and, and this uh, thing happened that was kind of crazy. And it was like this this band, Touche Amore, um, this hardcore band from Los Angeles, uh, wrote a song and they talked about Round Here in the song. And I kind of started talking to the singer through Instagram and stuff. And and I I kind of like, after all that was over, I was like, I think I didn't want to play for not the right. I, I think I stopped for the wrong reasons. Oh, you know? okay. And so I got back into it and I started from scratch. And, um, but one of the things that was really exciting that I learned from when I was getting back to it was like that there's no one way to do it, you know? And, and I think I had all these like preconceptions in my head, just like the way as a filmmaker, you can um, get stuck in a rut of like, I have to do things a certain way. I, I watched this, uh, you know, this video on YouTube and the guy was like, I'm going to show you how to use a metronome, but use it on the upbeats. And you're still going to, it's still going to count one, two, three, four, but you're going to hear it on the upbeats and you're going to play it, play against it. Like that uh, Radiohead song videotape. I don't know. I don't know that. I'm sorry. You can that edit song? out that I don't know it, but yeah. <laughs> you just want to say, yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, that yeah, song. I totally know that, Shane. <laughs> um, well, well, Chris, you were also, um, you in one of your past careers, you were a manager for uh, Ryan Adams' uh, pre-solo band, Whiskey Town, and there was a book written about that period. And I was fascinated because you, you told me about the book. I read it. You were mentioned a few times in the book. And I was fascinated that I swore it was mentioned in the book that you stopped playing just because you thought you couldn't go to the next level. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. why? That's not, I don't, that's not what I get from you at all. Like well, I, you totally could have. I think what's really interesting is that like, um, once you see the randomness of like, I, I think, well, first of all, I should start out by saying like, I didn't want to be mediocre and i didn't want to be unsuccessful i wanted to be that was what i wanted to do that was my plan a in life i i went to college just because like i thought well maybe i can get in a band <laughs> college you know and and so really everything in my life from from the time that i was like probably like eight years old i was like i'm gonna be in a band and it's going to be a big band and I'm going to like, you know, be famous and like, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I think I wanted that. Um, I think that wanting that is insane. 
you know, and, and, you know, I guess I, I feel like that's just young. Like that, well, that, that you're, you're talking a lot of youthful ideas of like, I need to be perfect and imperfection yeah. is not going to come into the cards. So I think once you start to see, and, and once I was in the music business and I saw how absolutely random it is that people become famous, I was like, it kind of scared me. It was like, wow, you could be, because I can't tell you how many great bands that I saw um, that just never became famous. You know what I mean? And like great bands that should have just been like, just you, people should have followed them around on tour, you know? And, and then you start to go like, wow, this is all random and um, I have no control over it. And, um, and, but the bare minimum is to be really fucking good at your instrument, you know? I mean, with a few exceptions, of course, you know, and I just didn't feel like I got there, you know, and so um, this kind of getting back into playing now is is kind of about me seeing how far I could have gotten. Well, it, it just strikes me that like, I mean, Mach, the thing about Mock Orange over the years is every town I've lived in, worked on in film production, I'll, uh, I'll bring up the band from my hometown. And even though I guess, are you guys ostensibly a Newburgh band? Um, and there's always someone that's heard of them. Chris, uh, our friend, Matt Dunn was a big mock orange fan. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. And, and it's, you guys have, your band has kind of crudely the two iterations. You kind of had the pre first DP, uh, emo stuff, the nines and sixes era. And then the post first DP kind of, I don't know what you would call it. Mine is not brained era or what you guys are now, which is, constantly and you guys are doing the great thing where you chameleon between each each album and you're changing between each album but um it just it there's there's someone who knows about you guys but it always weirded me out that i mean uh he thought I, how do i put this i didn't really get into mock orange until i left evansville so it would have been after first dp and afterwards you guys became one of my favorite bands after i didn't have access to you at all and so then i would try to show you guys off to people and it always felt like i was just kind of selling my hometown's good band and i was just like what you guys had to have dealt with that over the years where beyond the fact of just like i wanted to play music so i can make money and not have a day job but also why are you like we should there's it's, this goes exactly what chris is talking about some bands were so good and just didn't get to that level where they could make it as a day job like for 20 years or so Right, right. Yeah, you know, we kind of came of age when MP3s first came out, and then people had access to cheap recording gear; they could do it on their computers. So, you know, we kind of we kind of got in there right when things were the hardest for bands. Gas prices were crazy. Touring was, you know, hard to do. I don't I mean, think I knew that bands... gas prices was a factor for people touring in the early odds. That's crazy. It makes sense though. I mean, we were we were struggling uh, to to just get from one show to the next for a lot of those early years, and I guess the big reason we had that big switch was was basically because people had to have day jobs when we got home, and we didn't have um, access to each other in the same room like we did when we wrote nines and sixes in the record play and the earlier albums. So Ryan was doing um, most of the writing you know, from mind is not brain kind of on. Is that when you guys moved to different towns? 
Uh, no, we all. I think we all lived in Evansville up until 2010 or 12 or something like that. Okay. want to switch um so he's one of the things that's amazing about your drumming is the thing that's always stuck out to me is um i imagine so much of your drumming is pretty instinctual so you probably don't want to intellectualize it or can't or or not interested in it but the syncopation the syncopation especially in your fills are always just like a rhythm is going and then it just kind of like stutter steps in a really interesting way um I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of editing, like messing around with syncopation and how to apply that to editing. I mean, this maybe should be an extension of the earlier question of how does rhythm apply to editing and vice versa, but um, do you have a philosophy on on things like syncopation or is it just something you just... No, and I think my brain goes to the crazy first. Mm. So, so, so for that mock orange... Uh, thing I just edited, I threw the, I threw everything at it at first. I was just like going in, making the craziest edits. And I realized this is an hour long. No one has the attention span for this. And I surely didn't. Um, so then I just read, like I scrapped all that. Right. So I, I don't know, for me learning about this kind of video editing thing, my brain wants to throw pauses in breaks. I want your eyes to do you know, crazy tricks all the time with the rhythm. Um, and then I have to remind myself, like, no one's going to watch this like I'm watching it right now. And and maybe that's not true, but, but uh, it feels like then I can kind of dial it back a little bit, leave some of the highlights, maybe the, the magic that I captured just kind of goofing around. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, I, have you have you looked at any of my Instagram stuff that I've Yeah, edited? no, that was another big reason I wanted to have this conversation. I mentioned the bands earlier that I was in in high school. We have a mutual friend, one of my best friends in high school, who I, I haven't really talked to for years, is Josh Rodenberg. And oh, yeah. Josh has been, I, Josh's career, you would tell me more about what he's doing because I, I just don't know, but it seems like all this video art stuff he's doing in an academia. And like there was one point where you guys had an exchange back and forth between each other and you mentioned filters. And that was where I was like, is a filter like a fill in drumming? Like it was just, it was, it was an interesting exchange between you two and just the, the video art stuff you guys had been exchanging back and forth between each other. Yeah. So if you look at that kind of thing, it gives you an idea. I, I like to punch out. I like to punch holes in, in, in the video punctuated by the rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it, and I guess it's what you're, what, you know, Chris, I think you're probably editing for other people, you know, like a, you have to kind of tell a story and I'm more doing it in, in that kind of artful way where I want your eyes to kind of uh, have an experience with your ears, you know, they, they kind of sync up. And so a lot of flashing and, um, no, that, that, yeah, you know what's what's funny. What's funny is that um, I'm actually thinking about something that was said to me recently. It's like, you know, a lot of times people will come to me and they say, um, "I want you to do that thing that you do." <laughs> you know, they go like, they go, "Oh, that crazy thing!" Like I've seen your stuff, and it just I want you to go crazy. And then you give it to them, and they're like, 
not that crazy. <laughs> you know? And, and I, have, I, I have had that reaction too. Sometimes. And it's very interesting because it, I think that, I, I don't think there's a correlation between, um, in some ways there's no correlation between editing and drumming because, you know, you have that live experience where you could just kind of improvise, but in, in editing, it's, it, I would say the, the correlation is more like studio work where I always had a very, yeah. I always got so in my head in the studio because I was like, I was like, I want every part to sound a little bit different. And my favorite drummers would always kind of do that, you know, where they could, they, they, it, it didn't really feel random you know, or it was planned and it felt random, you know? And so I think you have to, when you're editing, you have to like plan it out a little more because if you do the same thing at every, in every scene, people start, it's like what Tracy Duran say. It's like people start to figure it out. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's where, you know, the ability to kind of understand syncopation and, and understanding like, um, you know, that, uh, just where that grid is and where I can go off of that grid. Um, you know, that helps me. I mean, you know, just, just to kind of like big picture, what I think what's interesting, I I've been on shows before where I'm not kidding. Every editor was a drummer or is a drummer. Really? I'm not kidding. And like, that's, uh, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, you having this podcast, it, it feels like kind of obvious to me because okay. I run into that all the time. That might be a good transition. I have a pet theory, Chris, and you might be able to answer a part of this. So uh, we did an episode a few back on Bob Fosse and in some of the stuff I was reading on him found out that Bob Fosse was a drummer. And I've had a pet theory forever that directors are drummers, not necessarily editors are drummers, but directors are drummers. I got so, um, he, do you know an Evansville filmmaker named Kevin Chenault? No, I, I'm sorry. I don't. Okay. Um, he was on the very first episode. I was talking to him the other day. I found out he was a drummer. In fact, he played in the same Northside punk scene. I just completely didn't know about it, but as to other wow. directors, <laughs> yeah. Um, we got, uh, my favorite is Stanley Kubrick. Obviously you got someone like Damien Chazelle with Whiplash, uh, Peyton Reed, director of Ant-Man. I brought these names up so many times. Um, Chris, you might be able to answer one. I have been saying forever that Richard Linklater is a drummer. And I don't know if I'm basing that on the fact that in Before Sunset, uh, Jesse, his autobiographical character, says he's a drummer and they used to play in a band. Do you know if uh, Rick ever used to play drums? I've never heard that. I, I mean, he was a baseball player. Um, yeah. And, and pretty good from what I heard. But, um, but no, I never heard that. He just is so uh, in touch with music. Um, and I think that, um, I think that is probably his way of expressing, I think filmmaking, I think his love of music is expressed in his filmmaking. Okay. You know, I think it's interesting though, that, um, Heath, that you brought up Dinosaur Jr. Because like, I, I you know, I was always shocked. I was shocked. I think when I, when I, I heard Green Mind for the first time, I'm like, tower records and say i like i remember the day that i heard green mind it was in san francisco and it was at tower records and they played two records which was insane because i was i must have been in there a long time they play and they did both these albums kind of changed my life one of them was green mind and and when i got that album home i was like kind of surprised to see that like oh jay maskus played some drums on on yes this. and i was like I was always amazed and, by that and, too. and they were my favorite tracks because 
like, you know, all the great, I mean, like Prince, the, the stuff that Prince would play, the stuff that Jay Maskus would play, it just wasn't what a drummer would play. Instead. Right. It's almost like a, the, the, the missing piece of a puzzle. Um, and I'm telling on myself here a little bit, but Ryan Grisham from our band, he actually wrote a lot of the drum parts and I mostly embellished them uh, after a certain part it probably became like 50 50 and i would say the same thing that's my some of my favorite songs were the ones that he just basically wrote you know and i i mean i i kind of learned to i changed my entire style to learn how to play like him which is this kind of real sloppy uh loose uh i i i got rid of all my technique to do it yeah. like i i, I kind of turned into ryan as a drummer and facilitated, you know, that, that, that part of that puzzle, uh, which was, I, I love because I learned so much, you know, I was taught such a rigid, you know, structured way of thinking about drums. And um, I did like odd time signatures and this and that, but just having him kind of put these, put the drums in there as a, as a piece of the puzzle. Um, whereas I would have overplayed or, you know, <laughs> completely put the backbeat in the wrong place or a different place, maybe not wrong, but you know, different. those, those albums or songs would not have been the same. Keith, you know so. what song I've been thinking of when you mentioned the crazy was, uh, it's one of the last songs on put the kid on the sleepy horse intake where that song's always fascinated me just because like, there's like a lyrical setup where uh, I think the lyrics say something like the sounds insane again. And then you go off on like, and it's not like a like flashy fill because it's almost like a quiet fill, but like the song is so straight laced in that point. And then suddenly it sounds very dreamy. And I don't know you to use Ryan's term sloppy or the term you were describing sloppy, Ryan stuff sloppy. How does Ryan write stuff for you? Well, on, on, on sleepy horse, we just collaborated and, and I would play something and he'd say, hey, try this or try this. Uh, you know, we've never been super egotistical about like, oh, I have to write the part. Um, so I've, I've always sure. helped with guitar stuff and then he's helped with with drum stuff. Um, and I always listen to Ryan because it's like he just knows where he wants that groove and how he wants that song to kind of feel. OK, so uh, I don't I don't know that specific part, what we were kind of going through, but. A lot of times it is that we sort of build these parts together. Um, and the, the reason I stayed in the band was because we together wrote window shopping. Okay. Uh, and he sent me a tape uh, in the mail. I lived in Bloomington. I was going to the uh, music school there right before we went out and recorded the record. And honestly, getting that tape and hearing what he had put to that, that rough skeleton that we wrote together the lyrics and the other guitar parts and everything. It was, uh, yeah, window shopping. I, I was just like, this is a sign. Like this, it changed my life. Like I loved it. Uh, you know, I didn't know what we did. And he just took it to the next level. And I thought, yeah, I, I want to do this. So. Well, for the Jay Maskus thing you guys are talking about, the things that were popping in my head where I mentioned Radiohead being a big thing earlier, I think of like Tom York coming up on random drunk beats, like on Kid A or... The one that's coming to mind more is Paul McCartney on the White Album. Like, there's certain drum beats that only someone that's good with melody could come up with. And mm. do you, I mean, 
Heath, if you started on piano, melody is obviously a part to you. Chris, is melody a part to you? And how's it, does it, do you ever think of melody whenever you're going with uh, editing? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think melody is emotion in a way, you know, I think, I, I think I'm thinking about emotion and rhythm and, and how I could, for, number one is always emotion for me. It's like story sure. and emotion. And then, and then how can, how can the rhythm reinforce that, you know? Um, and sometimes, you know, you can, you can make something uh, feel emotionless just by doing those things that you don't want to do, which are, you know, cutting in a very uh, clinical way, you know, and things like that. Um, you know, it, I think you have to have, I think it's like, I think that, when I'm now that I'm back into playing and I'm discovering new books and things like that, and, and I'm, I'm learning to read and more, you know, I, like I was not good at reading before and now I'm better at reading. And I'm just learning that filmmaking, you have the more tools you have, the more vocabulary you have, the better it's going to be. And, and I think that those, like, you know, you brought up Richard Linklater. It's like, he just, um, he knows so much about film, you know, same with a Quentin Tarantino or Stanley Kubrick. It's like, they know so much about film. They just have this huge vocabulary to work with. And so, and the same thing with playing is that, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I learned to play was by listening to the clashes, London calling and, you know, <laughs> Topper Heaton played a different style of, in every single song. And, you know, one oh. of the most musical drummers there ever was. And, um, and so I think, you know, I've always wanted to um, express that in, in the way I edit, you know, just incorporating different vocabulary. Hmm. Um, Did I leave you speechless? Sean? No, no. <laughs> Chris, you always leave me speechless. Um, back to your, Heath, back to your point earlier about the, um, the uh, longer term thing on a, making the video longer. One of the things I've noticed with a bunch of the, the, since I've moved back to Evansville, I found that there's a lot of local talented local filmmakers, but the problem always seems to be that they know short form and they haven't done the like link to getting into long form and how to, and what Chris was talking about earlier pacing. And it really, Chris's point earlier about uh, set lists made a lot of sense. I like, like I think there's a big correlation between set lists album uh, uh track listing putting tracks in order and uh the pacing of a movie where like a lot of it it's it, it in itself is its own skill um mm. i don't know is that fair do you, do you guys see anything there absolutely well i'm i mean i'm thinking about you know when when uh, you know i was managing whiskey town uh you know and they we were doing their their debut album it's for for geffen and like and we went to um, we went to Nashville to record with a guy named Jim Scott, who's you know started out at Sound City and just a fucking amazing you know he did a lot of Tom Petty records and Rolling Stones and stuff. This guy is like a monster producer, and I just learned so much from just watching him work. But you know, but one of the things that I felt like I was able to bring to the table as the manager was like was like, hey. I have good input on the way we would the, the track, you know, the way we, we, um, the, the, you know, the, 
the order of these songs on the album and we can okay. really create and i'm really proud of the way that stranger's almanac is uh sequenced it's a great sequence and it starts with we a have very, talked about stranger's almanac many times and, and it the sequencing starts, is something yeah the, it starts with my idea was to start with in you know in town and it's like and which is a very it's very counterintuitive it's a very slow song but to me it felt thematically and emotionally like it would um like the album could just build you know and um and i think it does you know so so that i mean that's similar because it goes into uh one of my favorite whiskey town songs excuse me while i break my own heart i remember uh around the time we first started working together chris i made a um my thing was to access this for set listing forever was the i i used to make monthly mix cds and um i had a ryan adams song at the beginning of one of them but uh it was called Starlight Diner, and it's a very mm -hmm. quiet song. And I remember giving it to a friend, and the friend was just like, "Oh, it's like there's a prologue before the mm -hmm. rest of this this mix CD." And mm -hmm. and it was funny just because it struck me that he was using a storytelling term, which obviously an album is a storytell a story told that makes sense, but it just threw me off. Yeah, and I think that that's the way it is with, you know, sometimes, you know, the track listing or, or the set list, uh, you know, the sequencing or the set list or the, the, the order of scenes, there's a lot in common there, you know, and you can move scenes, you can move shots, you can move dialogue and stuff to make it better, more emotional, you know, uh, make it flow better, you know, have better pacing. And so I think that that's stuff that's in my vocabulary from music. So do you, do you guys know Kendrick Lamar's stuff? A little, yeah. not that much. Chris will know it better than me. I, th I think on his new record, Damn, mm -hmm. he actually uh, put out the first track listing, which was m most of the kind of loaded up front songs. And it gave it this sort of like, oh, here's the hits vibe, right? Mm -hmm. And then at some point he released another version where he started from the back of the album and it's a completely different experience just like you're saying and i think it's just because we're all storytellers in our own heads when we listen to music right and so if we're being taken to that hit land to begin with it's it's almost contrived feeling it but then you start on those deeper cuts and you're just like wow there's some depth here and and it you know i don't know if the average listener would get turned off by that or intrigued more you know, instead of, oh, here's just another hip hop record or whatever. Well, Heath, you know what's funny is around the time Chris and I uh, first started working together, anyone who had to take a ride with me would have heard, it would have been right after Captain Love came out. I had made my own mix CD of Mock Warren's greatest hits. And this is in the middle of that mix, uh, making people mixtapes, mix CDs. And I came to this conclusion that opening songs and closing songs were surprisingly interchangeable. Like they, because you wanted to either go out on a thesis statement or go out on a, you know, an emotional moment. And so uh, I put Growing Crooked as the very final song on there. And it, as an album closer, it shockingly worked really well. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because it's so, it's, it's, so in my mind, it's just so opener. So to hear it kind of wrap things up would be, yeah. But you, you, well, you th know, that song has such a strong 
it's 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 like a very uh, bombastic indie, and it just like tells you this album's over. And I remember I'd always yeah. hear uh, I had payroll as the first song, so you'd hear the the CD rewinding, and you just hear the end of the song, and then it would go to pay like the little <laughs> CD motor doing its sound, and then we go to payroll, and that that like feedback opening of payroll. Yeah, it was always. Anyone who rode in my car from like 2009 to 2013 would have heard that CD. Well, that's amazing. Wow. You know that 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 it's it's interesting because like yeah, we have these like set ideas of the way that I mean, first of all, you know, sequencing or it doesn't work unless you're thinking about an album. You know, it, it, if you're just thinking about songs, well then yeah, you want to front load all the you know all the all the goods. I mean, if you're doing a demo tape or something, you know, if you're playing a band, you know, if you're, if you're playing it for somebody important, it's like, yeah, you want to. What about if you're playlisting a a party playlist or something like that, or something that like suddenly you have to pace out for hours or something. Well, you know, it's interesting because that's like, you know, you know, we, we, I don't know, were you around when Daniel Resende was, was. Okay. So yeah. So, so Daniel was a, just a fantastic DJ. And, and I think that, you know, his DJ skills bled over into the editing and he just, he just knew, he just knew how, he knew how to read a room, you know, and he knew how to build and, and the, the best DJs I've known, they really understand like how you get from one thing to another. And I think that's, that's the part of uh, filmmaking that relates also to, to, musicality is knowing how to transition from one scene into another because it's not easy you know so chris can i ask can i ask you a question because you have a lot more experience and this is kind of like an opportunity for me to ask this but uh if you're given something to edit and it doesn't and and they're like we want it to kind of go here's the storyline are they kind of dictating that to you and if so um does it ever not work for you and you and you get to and you get to say, hey, you know, this might flow a lot better like this? Or do you usually get like a free like free reign over uh, kind of how, that? How, how are you punching it together? So that's a great question, because like, to you know, as the editor, if I'm doing like a let's say I'm doing a feature and it's somebody's, you know, this is something that they wrote or, you know, this is this is their first film or whatever. You know, th- I want to show it to them the way they wrote it, the way they envisioned it. And if they believe that scene one should go first, I buy into that 100% and I want to show them that. However, I may believe, hey, scene one could go later in the film, you know, um, and we could circle back to that or we could change it or we could put another scene that's at the end at the beginning. Um, those are things I wouldn't do and until they had seen it the way they imagined it. Interesting. So it, with the analogy of, uh, a, a, of the track listing for an album, you would give it to them in an order maybe that they thought they wanted to hear, but then because we had a, a producer do this once where he said, I have the order of this down. I think it was for Captain Love or something, but he called us and just said, I listened to all these songs and here's the order it needs to go. And we put it in that order and we listened to it and we said, no, his mind is not brain. And we said, yep, that's perfect. Really? Yeah, I think it was uh, Mark Chevalier, if you remember yeah. that name from, from way back yeah. in the day. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, you, you the, the thing is, is like... um 
you have to establish trust with somebody. And I'm sure that like, if you didn't like this producer, you wouldn't have listened to what they said, you know? And, and I think that once somebody respects you creatively, then you're more open to their ideas. Mm. So what, so when you, I've noticed you did some music videos for, is it Whitney? Mm -hmm, yeah. So when you when you get a, when you get that is that all set up too to where you're they're like we want it to kind of flow this way. So that's a really or, that's a really interesting. Okay, so that's a really interesting example. So yes, Peter Peter Simonite who's a fantastic DP and he actually he shot the sunflower shot that's you know at the end of uh, of tree. Is it still at the end, Shane? I always forget. <laughs> yeah, he didn't he also shoot a bunch of uh, explosion in the skies videos that are yeah, he's, amazing he, looking. Yeah, he's 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 really great. He's, he's so good. he sh he shot this this video and he's like he's like you know the way I, this is how I see it I see it as you know these these people uh, you know they they're this couple's in a bar and this other guy's looking at them and he's remembering when he, when they had an affair and, you know, when, when he had an affair with this girl and, you know, and he's really bummed about it and then they hook up at the end. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Okay. And I did it. And then I was like, but I have another idea. And that is that what if we as the audience don't know whether he actually did have a relationship with this girl and what if I can create a feel where we're not quite sure. And some, and, and the people that I've showed that video to half of them say like, Oh yeah, he, he knows this girl and he had an affair with her. And then the other half are like, are like, Oh, I think he's just kind of imagining what it, what it would be like to be with this girl, you know? Interesting. And so interesting. that's what I wanted because I thought that would be more interesting. And so I said to Peter, I'm kind of thinking about this. What do you think? And he's like, I love that. I trust you. And it was only mm. through me working, working it the way he wanted it, that he was able to trust me and to take that other step. Well, it's interesting you bring up trust just because like it always seems like you have to develop the trust with the filmmaker. But a lot of the ways you do that is to your point, Heath, say someone gives you an original track listing. One of the phrases uh, Chris and I's old boss used to say was that the original idea, whenever they were, they were wanting us to do the original idea, he would always say this needs to have its day in court. Like you need to make the original idea work and try your hardest to make it at work. Not so much this idea of like, I give up prematurely on this original idea because I'm pretty putting all my eggs in the basket that this other idea is going to work. You have to put the effort to make the original idea work. And then as a side, usually you present, I've got this other idea. You want to see how this looks? And that's. So, so yeah. So I say you construct it, then you deconstruct it if you need to. So there's a Wilco album that I think Jim O'Rourke produced and, and he talked about how it was just a regular rock album until he just started taking everything out. They're like, you're taking out the main guitar part. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it, you know, is, is this Yankee hotel Foxtrot? Yeah. Yankee hotel Foxtrot. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, wow. I mean, the, there's such a great movie on the making of that, but also like, but they don't think of the notes, nuts and bolts on like what he took out or, and that, Totally makes sense. Um, well, you know, I'm thinking about something that I heard uh, recently, and it was um, this this German drummer. His name is Benny Grab. I don't know. He's like kind of an Instagram famous drummer, but he's fucking he's amazing. fantastic. He's fucking yeah. amazing. But one of the things he said that I, I I've now kind of like brought into the filmmaking is he said, you know, when I ask people to play a fill, 
I say, you know, I, I have to do these camps or these lessons or whatever. He says, I say, you know, play some time and play a fill. And probably nine out of 10 drummers will start on the snare drum, play 16th notes and end up on the floor tom or, you know, or some variation of that. Right. Okay. And, yeah, that and, totally and, makes sense. And, and which makes perfect sense. Cause that's, you know, what I've always, what I did when I was, that's what, you know, it's an instinctual uh, thing you're told it's to an do over instinctual and over. thing. Yeah. And you're in, and he said, he said, but what if, what if we didn't put a period or an exclamation point at the end of the sentence of Phil is on the toms and we said a question mark, put a question mark at the end of that. Does a Phil have to be on the toms and maybe a Phil is just playing time or on, on the rims or on like, you know, the hi-hat or, you know, and, and once we get rid of that period or that exclamation point and turn it into a question mark, the options open up. And I was like so blown away by that because I was like, that applies to any kind of art that you do, especially filmmaking. You're like, you know, oh, uh, the, the cuts have to match or you have to start on a wide shot or, you know, just all these things that we're taught. They could have well, this questions. Is, this also goes to like Steve Reich principles. There's things like, I mean, Chris, you and I used to do things where we'd have to randomly put shots random places and we'd find that you could, your mind would make it even when you randomly put something your mind would a lot of times make it make sense like it mm -hmm. felt there's a certain rhythm that like you imposed on it after watching it or you justified it yeah you know i also you know i teach editing at ut and and one of the things that we we you know i i went through a lot of effort to get um the the footage from mad men and and it's because um the uh the showrunner, uh, Matthew Weiner, he, I guess, I don't know, he has some connection to UT. He donated the dailies for every episode of Mad Men to UT. And so, but the problem was actually getting it and getting it into the Avid and everything. But eventually after months and months and months, I got it. And, and so one of the things that's so interesting is you watch these kids cut these scenes and it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what you should do if you're cutting in television. However, that's not the way Mad Men is cut. Yeah. And so, you know, if you look at Mad Men, he will, they will rarely use an establishing shot. They will, they will cut from, you know, they will cut from wide shot to wide shot, you know, from one scene to another. They'll do these things that you just, you're told not to do. And they just don't care. And I think there's like this freedom in that. So is it kind of like you, you kind of have to know the rules before you can break them? Absolutely. Think that... I mean, you know, the, I think it's this, going back to the, the topic of conversation. It's like you have to know how to play 16th notes starting on the snare drum and ending on the floor, Tom, and crashing on, on the one. You I know, see what you did there. I see what you did. You know, you, you have to learn that before you decide like, oh, I might, you know, play some triplets here or maybe go, you know, go odd time and you know, just do some crazy shit and, you know, um, yeah. Well, Chris, um, per Heath's earlier point of like, are more editing that's based in an artist or, or artistic place and a non-narrative place we've had, you and I have had experience in cutting stuff like that. And a lot of that is a, for my, I throw it against the wall and see if it works and a lot of trial and error and seeing if it gets an emotional reaction. 
that's my take on it. Do you have any advice to Heath about like, or just do you guys have any commiseration to have about how to make something that's just editorially rhythmic for rhythmic sake or musical, but not necessarily narrative or story told? I think, you know, I think it relates to the topic at hand, whereas like we're, we're like the drummer is not the lead singer, you know, and so, you know, the editor can't, you, you, I mean, yes, there's a, for the majority of the time that the editor is working, they are trying their best to make their work invisible. However, there are times when you give the drummer some, you know, you give the editor some, you know, and it's just like, so, so I think that it's, it's knowing when to lay back and knowing when to go outside, you know. I've been thinking a lot lately. Milo, um, I heard a quote of Milos Formans that he said most of filmmaking is really casting and editing. And that seems like the counterbalance between like your drummer and your lead singer. Like, because I mean, editing is the most intrinsic part of, ed- of film. It's the one part. I mean, how many, gra- I mean, how many great bands, I can only think of like, you know, maybe the white stripes when I think of like a, a great band with a shitty drummer, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's like, you, you know, and I've even, had this disagreement but, before, but okay. But even, but even there, there's something, there's something that she has that's like very interesting that comes from just not being a trained drummer, you know, that I don't think people could repeat. Yeah, I, I, we've had this conversation a few times. There's something to say about a kid playing on pans, the child energy of somebody hitting a rhythm that is more infectious than someone that's like super trained and, and joyless. I mean, yeah, Jay Maskus is a great example where it's like, he's not perfect, but man, he plays just fascinating shit. Heath, uh, had, uh, one big question for you. Uh, the other big revelation of what little I've seen of the new um, concert piece, I guess let's call it, is your new guitar player. Mm-hmm. You guys, okay. Got- I, I didn't, I didn't know if that would come up or not. I, I, I don't think it's made the papers yet or anything. But uh, I mean, not to take away from Joe. Joe's an incredible guy, incredible player. Uh, I miss having him, you know, on my left side, but. Matt is a—he's a drummer. That was—that <laughs> was the reason it, I wanted to bring it up. Matt McGuire was uh, a quasi legend on the North Side as I was in high school. Because the story, the 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 legendary story I always remember about him in high school was that whenever Jimmy Chamberlain first got fired from the Smashing Pumpkins, Matt was invited to uh, the tryouts for the new Smashing Pumpkins drummer that I think eventually went to one of the to- the Toadies drummer at the time. But I remember Matt McGuire, yeah. He was the guy yeah, who so, Smashing Pumpkins. So he's he, his rhythm is incredible, and him and I we sync up really well. You know, I want to. I'd like to, to say something there that's really interesting because uh, the um, I think the way you kind of become a more melodic drummer is like listening to the guitarist more than the bassist. Hmm, that makes sense. You know, I yes, I think there's things that you can hear in there that. You know, I, I think a lot of people just tend to lock in with the bassist, and uh, I sometimes, you know, I would love to just lock in with the the guitarist, just you know, and just really focus on what they're doing, and how can I um, enhance that, you know? Yeah, Heath, have you guys started writing new songs with uh, Matt as guitar player? Well, uh, we have we have practice obviously for that for that live. Uh, 
live uh, session, but not really. Okay. <laughs> we do have a few songs that are kind of in the in the works, and Ryan's mentioned, hey guys, let's try, I know we're in different cities, but let's just, I'm just going to throw ideas to people and we'll just toss them around. Why can't we do that? Even as a something, you know, just to do for fun, if it doesn't end up being something we'd, we'd like to release. But so that's hopefully going to start happening um, as soon as Ryan gets <laughs> something recorded and sent out. But uh, yeah, the the last time I actually saw Matt McGuire play, which was the first time I'd seen him in twenty years, was uh, when you guys played Evansville for the nines and sixes reunion thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, I was gonna bring up uh chris i was gonna bring up that uh in the blink of the eye the definitive uh walter murch's definitive book on editing is based on a john houston uh observation that most edits have to happen on a blink because a blink is your observation of a thought and when you're watching someone and they're thinking the minute they have another thought is when they blink oh wow yeah i mean i don't I, I don't know that I've ever bought that. I, I, I think that's been just, I think it was an observation that, that he had like watching Gene Hackman. And I just think that's a, I don't know. It worked on the movies that he was cutting, but like, you know, try to do that and see what happens. Okay. <laughs> it, it's something you, after the fact, you're like, this is why it worked, but it really was you that's right. paint on the wall and the paint got in the right spot. You're absolutely right. No, I think it, I think it worked with the movies he was working on, but I don't know that it would work all the time. But I, you know, I think that, that, um, yeah, I, I would, I, I think what that does is it, it takes the power away from the editor. Cause I think you are the one who needs to dictate the pace as the editor and, and not, not so much the actors, but you know, I think you let the performance be the guide, but ultimately like that's your job is to pace the movie. Just, that's just my opinion. Fair enough. Uh, to the rise of the director editor. Um, Chris Roldan, Heath Master, thank you guys for being on the podcast. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Heath.